Okay, students. Welcome back to Dante's The Divine Comedy, Lecture 23, Purgatorio, Lecture 6, Day 3, Cantos 15 to 19, though really it'll be more like 15 to 18. Uh, we're going to talk about anger, free will, love, and we're going to get to fourth terrace of sloth today. All right, recall last time we ended on a quote from Marco Lombardo, a quote talking about the relationship between free will and the stars. The very last terse, it was misrule, you see, has caused the world to be malevolent. Malevolent means evil-willed. The cause is clearly not celestial forces, stars, things in the heavens, things in the, in the air, in the sky. They do not corrupt. All right, let's get some analysis of those quotes that we read last time. So, the stars may initiate movements. They can set your temperament. Uh, they're very similar to familial influence in that way. Just like, uh, and Dante will make a proviso for familial influence and the influence potentially of God. Uh, he will suggest that the reason why Children are not the exact same as their parents as the influence of a divine being making them slightly different. We would say that it is the random, uh, uh, and it's funny, if you read a uh, college biology textbook, you will see that uh, DNA randomly folds. And uh, DNA has something like 1,500 gigabytes in each strand of it or something like that. It's a tremendous amount of information. Uh, basically, you are made of information. In any case, the idea will be that... Um, the idea is that you are influenced by the stars, just like you are influenced by your parents. You receive something interesting from them. Like I said yesterday, of course, it is the case that Dante believes that he was uh, he was he passed through the heavens of Gemini, the twins, when he was uh, when he was a soul becoming a human, and that because of that, he is creative and intellectual. And some people during the time of Dante seem to have taken that idea that the stars can influence your temperament and make you a certain way. And they seem to have extended that idea to suggest that the stars can make you good or evil. The stars can make your choices for you. Perhaps you are totally determined, totally fated, totally destined to do everything that you do. And if you are, in fact, totally destined by the stars at the beginning of your life to do all that you do, can you possibly be good? No. Can you possibly be bad? No. Because... If the stars made one's decision, would the person himself be good or bad, or would the stars be good or bad? You can see that even people today believe that the fault is in our stars. And interestingly enough, there are other excuses like that that people will take. They'll say, nah, astrology, you know, it's my star that makes me like this, or my parents are this sort of way, or I come from this amount of wealth, or I come from this, uh, this community. People are always looking for excuses for why they are in some way deficient, or degenerate, and they always have been. This is the particular way in the medieval Italian uh, at 14th century. In any case, Dante has Marco continue. He says, well, the thing is, if the stars made all your decisions for you, there would be no such thing as free will. But it is not the case that you are simply born with a free will. In fact, actually, as we read yesterday, uh, it is the tendency that your will is attracted by your appetites at first, too lowly things, vulgar things, things like gluttonous things and lust, uh, you know, sweet things, salty things, things easy to acquire, animal-like things, rather than rational or celestial or infinite or eternal things. And so one's will, when one is young, has to be guided, guided by three potential things. A guide, like a Virgil, a ruler, an appropriate ruler, like a good king, which uh, those seem to be in short supply during Dante's time, perhaps at all times, or the laws. The laws are supposed to uh, govern the body of a people, govern in another way the mind of a people. If one has a good guide, 
a good ruler in good laws, one's will will be appropriately, uh, hmm, how do I say, developed so that one can produce a mind in oneself so that one can make one's own decisions. But if one does not receive such guidance, such restraint, one will not learn self-restraint and will be pulled off like Odysseus's companions towards the lotus eaters, towards, uh, towards the cattle of the sun, and will simply not make it home. Obviously, I do, uh, at least along one track, uh, analyze or interpret Odysseus's journey uh, allegorically as uh, the sorts of things that keep you from getting what you want or getting to the top. In any case, the laws also serve to guide one's will until one can think for one's self and become one of those with mind in you who are free. And so apparently, uh, uh, you have to be free in order to be good or bad, but you are not naturally free. You have to go through some subjugation. You have to go through some education and some training in order to get free. And that is the whole idea. So, since there is good and bad in the world, since there are good and bad in the world, I should say, and the world is going off course according to Dante slash Marco here, the responsibility for these events is not with the stars creating people with poor temperaments, but is with the bad choices that humans are making. It makes perfect sense. If humans are the only creatures with free will, and therefore humans are the only creatures that can be good or bad, and things are defined as bad around humans, where does that bad come from? Well, that bad comes from the bad decisions of the humans that are making things bad for the people around them. Uh, generally, precisely, from the bad rulers, the bad leaders. They're setting poor examples for those beneath them. And if they become greedy, avaricious, and pursue lowly, worldly things, then those who follow them are going to follow their example. And that's precisely what Dante has Marco Lombardo say is the problem at this point in the world, in particular in Florence and Italy and Germany in the larger uh, regional area. So, blaming the stars is simply a way to avoid personal responsibility. It's the stars. It's, uh, <laughs> it's funny. It is interesting uh, to, to what extent we, to this day, not only maintain astrological thinking in terms of thinking about astrology, but even apply that, say, to some of the humanistic sciences. We define you as having some condition, because you have this condition, you can't do some certain thing, and then you have an excuse not for doing it, and then you never learn to do it. Have we done something good for you, or something uh, debilitating for you? Interesting thing to wonder about. Uh, whenever somebody offers to do something for you that you ought to do for yourself, you really ought to question whether that's a good thing or not. That is uh, uh, one of the rules in elder care homes. Never do something for an elderly person that they can do for themselves, because then they become dependent, and then often it leads to them dying sooner, which would make me very much question whether doing everything for someone is a good thing or a bad thing. Because can they then exercise their will and develop their will if they are constantly just uh, using the training wheels rather than learning to balance for themselves? A big question here. And a big question as we approach the diametric center of the Purgatorio, but also the Divine Comedy itself. Remember, the Divine Comedy is 100 cantos. We are about to be in the 50th canto. You would expect in a poem so carefully constructed that in the 50th canto, in the very center, we are going to find the true message or the biggest message of the Divine Comedy. We are almost there. We are not quite there. Ah, yes, also recall this. The whole argument of the stars or something beyond your own will being responsible for the bad decisions, say, you make or, uh, or for the production of the bad things in the world 
That is exactly the argument that Bernardo Latini made. Remember, follow your star, and you cannot fail to reach a glorious harbor. Well, where is he? In the inferno. What does that mean about that thinking that obviates personal responsibility and blames something outside oneself? It means that it's infernal thinking. It's false thinking. It's deceitful thinking. And so Marco says, it's bad thinking. All right, for Rome, which made the world good, used to have two sons. We're going to talk about the theory of two sons here. And they made visible two paths. The world's path, secular, the state, the pathway that is, and the pathway that is God's, that's the sacred one. So the state versus the sacred or the church. Each has eclipsed the other. Uh-oh. Now the sword has joined the shepherd's crook. The two together must of necessity result in evil. Doesn't sound very good. Sounds like some bad choices by people. Or some evil stars, right? Because so joined, one need not fear the other. And if you doubt me, watch the fruit and flower. Where every plant is known by what it sees. That means if you want to know the value of a choice, look at the effects of that choice. Within the territory watered by the Adige and Po, one used to find valor and courtesy. That is before Frederick, that's Frederick II from Canto 12 of the Inferno, the father of Manfred, was met by strife. Now anyone ashamed of talking with the righteous or meeting them can journey there secure. Two, three old men are there in whom times were proved the new. They find God is slow in summoning them to a better life. So the two fun sons there. Excuse me. This is a balance of power bit by Marco Lombardo. He's talking in terms that remind us very much of why we have three parts to the federal government in America. The legislative, judicial, and executive branch. The idea is they are supposed to uh, be a system of checks and balances on each other to keep each other uh, uh, enacting their appropriate role uh, properly. Well, this is a less sophisticated model of that, whereas we have three branches. Here, there are two branches. And the problem is, these two branches are very much supposed to be distinct from each other in order to balance each other, like two plates on a balance. One of those is the state. It's supposed to guide worldly affairs. One of those is the church. It's supposed to guide spiritual affairs. What is the problem? They have been mixed together. How? Well, recall, uh, Dante believes that the donation of Constantine from 325, when Constantine gave land to the Holy Roman, or excuse me, to the uh, Roman Church, that the Roman Church became then concerned with worldly things. Worldly things like maintaining property, acquiring more property, maintaining a standing army, or rather producing an army for the Crusades and paying those people. That it became concerned with the sorts of things that an empire becomes concerned with. Well, then it just becomes another what? Empire. And when you have two empires together, uh, well, what tends to happen? Conflict. Rather than harmony. Rather than being two parts of the same whole, they're two holes trying to occupy the same part. And so when Dante says that the church has dirtied itself, he literally means that it has mixed itself with that which belongs to the state, become like the state, and is now acting like a state, in contrast, in competition, in conflict with the state itself, which is a profound idea, a very interesting idea. In any case, the two are supposed to balance each other. When they are combined, neither uh, feels the other, and they fail to balance, and therefore the church has dirtied itself. It is no longer doing what is appropriate to its station. It is acting like a sort of defective state. Huh. Well, interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. In any case, let's move on to some examples of gentleness. So we are in the terrace of 
wrath, the expating virtue here, which recall, is not a theological or cardinal virtue, not one of those big seven virtues that you need to know. Uh, gentleness, sometimes called meekness, is what is necessary to get over uh, 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 anger. Something interesting about meekness is a lot of people, because it rhymes with the word weak, thinks it means to be weak. To be meek means to, uh, I've heard this definition used, to have a sword that you are capable of using but not using it. So to be gentle means to have the strength to be violent and to choose not to. So there's a big difference between being meek and being weak. In any case, the first example is, as we would expect, a visionary experience. Remember, these characters are blind because of the acrid smoke. So how do they see the art? Well, the envious, they heard the art, the poetry, the proud, they saw the art in sculpture. Well, these people actually imagine the art. They have visionary experiences in front of them. Sort of like what movies are for us, or television. In any case, the first person, as usual, is Mary. Mary to Jesus says, Why hast thou thus dealt with us? The story is that, uh, and this comes from Luke, uh, one of the synoptic gospels, that Jesus, when he was a young kid, I think he was 12 at the time, during the Passover ceremony, remember he was Jewish, so he celebrated Passover, went to um, a temple and was talking with these priests, and when his parents left, he stayed. And so his parents had to deal with, where is our kid? Where, are, where has he gone? And when Mary went to find him, she was obviously very upset with him. And she said, why have you dealt thus with us? And he very famously uh, responds, I don't have it here, but he says, I've been about the business of my father. Which is a pretty callous thing to say to your mother. Imagine any of you attempting to, uh, your mom hasn't seen you in two days. You didn't text her. She's freaking out. You come back to see her, she's screaming at you because where have you been? And you say, Mom, I've been about the business of my father. How does she respond? Even more screaming, potentially. So I wouldn't recommend trying this, but this is the example of gentleness. The idea is that even though Mary was so upset with Jesus, she just gently asked him. I'd say as a teacher, uh, that is often the case. When students know that they've done wrong and they come up to me and they expect, say, uh, a verbal lashing, they come up, they're like, oh, Mr. Schmidt, I didn't turn this in. I suppose I could yell at them, and maybe when I was younger, I might have been sterner with them. But usually, they're already beating themselves up. And so there's no need to be angry or mean to a student. Usually, they appreciate it when you're gentle, because they already feel bad enough. And I'd say that uh, most people who have what we call a moral compass or conscience, uh, you don't need to add much to it. They feel bad enough when they do something wrong. A little bit different if somebody is defiant. Defiant against what? In any case, the second example. I really love this example. It's a guy named Pisistratus. He was a tyrant of Athens in the 6th century BC. Well, his daughter apparently had some boyfriend who made the big mistake of kissing her in public, making her look like something of a, a shameful harlot. Well, his wife, like Queen Amata, who we'll actually talk about uh, very soon, uh, said, well, since this boy made this terrible decision, we need to kill him. And his sister toes, even though a tyrant showed great judgment here, he says, what should we do with one who wishes us ill if one who loves us is condemned by us? I love that idea. The idea underlying what he says is that when you are angry with somebody, even if they are your friend, you turn them into your enemy in your mind and then act like they are your enemy. How many of you have siblings who are about the closest allies you can possibly have, 
who you will actually violently fight against when you are angry with them. Almost all of you? Right, exactly. How many of you have ever said something mean or cruel to a coach or a teacher or your parent? Almost all of you? Right, all of us. Right, what does that mean? Were you thinking rationally when you did such a brilliant thing? No. Were you looking at someone who was your ally and friend as an enemy in such a moment? And I think Paisistratos' words bear some comment, bear some moment of reflection. How should you treat your enemies if you are willing to murder your friends for their mistakes? It's like, it sounds like you're willing to do the same thing to an enemy as you are to your friend. Sounds like there's not much difference between being your enemy and being your friend. Who does this remind me of and probably remind you all of? Yes, Achilleus from the Iliad last year, where he literally asked Zeus to harm his own side of battle, leading to the death of his best friend. Exactly. And so, anger seems to be a very uh, troubling emotion if it is able to make us declassify friends as friends and reclassify reclassify friends as enemies. Hmm. The third example, this is a horrifying example. I want you to look at this mob and this guy on the ground and the stones getting thrown at him and he looks sort of like Dante but it's not Dante. That's St. Stephen. Now this is a terrible story. The very first Christian martyr was named St. Stephen. St. Stephen, um, and there's a little bit more to this story than I'm going to tell you, apparently was causing some trouble in a, a city. Uh, and he did cause a little bit of trouble, so in a way he did bring this on himself, though uh, perhaps nobody uh, really brings uh, this style of execution on themselves. He uh, was stoned to death for being a Christian, is the more generalized story, though of course he did uh, in some ways uh, earn it. I, I forget exactly what it is he did. He either broke some law or refused to... Uh, to do something important at the time. I'll have to look that up for you and share it with you in the next lecture. But it, it's conceivable that he would have been stoned for what he did, though not, uh, though still not quite just. In any case, it was decided that he would be kicked out of the city, and outside of the city he would be stoned to death by the community. And the horrifying part of this, besides the fact that, you know, obviously he gets stoned to death for what he believes in, is that while he's being stoned, he's praying for the people who are killing him to be saved, which is just an incredible moment of meekness or gentleness. Though he could be calling down curses on their name, as one would imagine most people would be doing, he tries to bless the people that are killing him for what they are doing. He, of his eyes, always made gates of heaven. And so very interesting, St. Stephen, the first martyr, dying for an idea. And so the idea continues on, though St. Stephen does not. But his story does. His Cleos lives eternally. In any case, again we return to a bit of self-reflection here. Dante recognizes, through these examples that he's looking at, his own errors. I quote, When my soul turned from these appearances to the things which are independently of itself, I recognized my errors, which were not falsehoods. He turns his view from what he's looking at, the art, to looking within at himself. In what ways does he exhibit these vices? In what ways could he uh, uh, benefit from these virtues? These representations of gentleness 
help Dante to see his own flaws, his own errors. Well, this is supposed to be some hint to us about what the value of art is and why art surrounds you at all times. You have TV commercials, shows, movies, plays, even your shirts and clothes are art. Look at them. I see symbols all over them everywhere. Interesting. Well, what's the point of all this art? It seems so useless. Apparently it's not useless. The purpose of art is to inspire greater self-reflection and thus greater self-knowledge. The point of art isn't to understand art, but to understand you and who and what you are as a creature that both looks at art, enjoys art, and can create art as well. And even if you say you don't, you do write for me, and that is art. And you do witness art in this classroom every single day. Hmm. Very good. Well, now let's see some far more interesting examples of rap. I think people being gentle, very interesting, obviously very important. We want to self-reflect on that and learn to be gentle rather than angry and wrathful. That said, let's see these wrathful people because we have some excellent examples. The first one, I love this example. It's in Ovid's Metamorphoses. So again, we see Ovid being quoted here. Uh, something interesting to note here as well. We're going to see an example both by Ovid and by Virgil. Keep this in mind. These are visionary images that appear in the heads of penitents on purgatory going to heaven from pagan literature, from Ovid, from Virgil. It's like God himself chose art from Ovid and Virgil to portray to sinners so that they could go to heaven. Very, very curious, very interesting that Dante would do that. Well, here's this story, and I, I can show you where it is in Ovid's Metamorphoses if you want to read it. Procne. Eventually she gets turned into a Nightingale, her sister, Philomela, gets turned into another sort of bird, and Terius gets in, turned into something like a chicken hawk. Here's the story. Procne had a very beautiful sister, Philomela. Her husband, upon seeing that sister, becomes a uh, uh, very, or, uh, yes, acquires qu quite some lust for her. Asks to go to Athens so that he can collect the sister. While he is on the ship with the sister, sort of falls in love with the sister. When he comes back to his own land, he takes the sister without knowledge of his wife, out to a, essentially, cabin in the woods. Out of that cabin in the woods, he does his thing with her as he wishes to. Very terrible thing to do. She then says, she's going to tell her sister, obviously enough. So then, of course, what does he do? Well, he uh, cuts out her tongue so that she can't ever tell anybody what has happened to her. Well, what does she do based on that? Well, she still has her hands, so what can she do? She weaves. She weaves a tapestry. And on this tapestry, it tells the story of her sorrows. And she has this tapestry sent, sent to her sister, who then sees it and interprets the signs. And is like, oh my Bacchus, oh my Jupiter, I cannot believe this has happened. Goes out to the woods, finds her sister, vows vengeance. Now she has a young son with Terrius. This is tragic, uh, and perhaps just, but you'll, you can weigh in on that, like Minos. She takes her son, and you're like, Man, these Greco-Roman people, the, whether it's Romans or Greeks, it doesn't matter. She takes her son, she kills him, she chops him up, and puts him into a, uh, a suit, just like, um, what is it, Thiestes had, had, yes, just as had happened to Thiestes in the house of Atreus, Agamemnon's uh, uncle. And so, she then feeds her son to her husband, who then is told, or asked a version of this question, what sort of meat do you think you just ate? And the answer is, 
human meat. That, that quote technically comes from a different story. In any case, she fed her own son to Terrius because she was angry. Well, that seems like sort of an error because what had she done to get back at her husband? She killed her son. Well, that's the sort of thing that anger causes one to do. And uh, then her, her, her husband supposedly ch chases her while turning into a hawk, while she turns into a nightingale, while her uh, sister Philomela turns into something else, some other sort of bird. In any case, second example of wrath. I don't know the story as well. It's an Old Testament story about Haman and Mordecai. But apparently this guy Haman wanted to crucify Mordecai because he was attempting to suppress the Jewish people. Unfortunately for him, he did not understand that the wife of the king was herself Jewish. And so she was very sympathetic to Mordecai and his people and not as sympathetic to Haman. He ends up suggesting that Mordecai be crucified, and yet he ends up receiving, because of his anger and his ruthless decisions, the same punishment that he had wished to trespass upon someone else. Though he wished to observe this character of Mordecai cru crucified, he is in turn crucified himself while Mordecai and Esther and Ahasuerus watch. Hmm. Mordecai then receives Haman's former position as well. So it's almost like when you get angry at somebody, you might lose that which you hope to gain. Very similar to the idea behind envy and perhaps even similar to the idea behind pride. It's almost like vices take from you that which they uh, claim to be able to give. It's almost like in being vicious, you lose something of great value. Mm. In any case, on to the third example. This one I know much better, and again, this is from Virgil. It is the example of Queen Amata, and you recall this from the Aeneid last year. Queen Amata, under the influence of Salina the Harpy, became very prejudiced against the foreigner Aeneas. Remember, she wanted her daughter Lavinia to marry the local man, Turnus. Turnus then fights against Aeneas in a fairly short war. Aeneas defeats Turnus, and... Uh, at some point, Queen Amata actually believes Turnus is dead before he dies. In believing that he is dead, she pulls sort of a Jocasta, sort of a Pierre de la Vigna, and she decides to kill herself. And what we see here is her daughter bewailing the fact that even though she, Queen Amata, was afraid of losing her daughter, now she has made her daughter lose her mother. She apparently had lost perspective while she was angry. Though she did not want her daughter to be married to a certain person, and did not want to see that happen, she did not think about the fact that even though her daughter would marry somebody that she disliked, that her daughter would prefer her to be alive than to be dead. And so part of the problem of anger seems to be that it blinds you to certain things, keeps you from full perspective on things, which seems to be the contrapasso of the black acrid smoke that makes uh, this particular terrace darker than hell. Hmm. All right, the slothful. This is, we're going to end with a very, uh, we're going to end now by talking about the structure of Purgatorio. We're going to enter the 17th canto of the Purgatorio, which is the diametric center of the Purgatorio and of the Divine Comedy itself. And in this center, we're going to see what the structure of the Purgatorio is. And we're going to see that it is based on love, suggesting that this whole poem, at the heart of it is love, suggesting that this poem itself is a love poem. Hmm. In any case, Virgil now discourses on natural and rational love as night falls and takes away the ability of Dante and Virgil to move forward physically. Now, natural love is defined 
as something which is always directly correct, directed correctly naturally. So some things you just naturally love, you can't do anything about it. And you can't direct it because it's natural, it just simply happens to you. I used to give the actual explanation that uh, Virgil goes through here, but I just think it's fairly boring and sort of straightforward. Rational love, however, can have an erroneous goal or object or end, those are all synonyms, uh, or be pursued inappropriately by too much vigor or too little vigor. And you notice here that I list that rational love, which is directed towards the wrong object, are the first three terraces, pride, envy, and anger. Apparently, these, are, these vices come from loving the wrong thing. So if you're proud, what do you love more than anything? Yourself, rather than something even higher and better than yourself, like justice, which would better yourself if you were to love it. Well, if you envy, what do you love? You sort of love hating other people. And if you're angry, what do you love? Well, just as Achilleus described anger, the sweetness of anger. Well, in the fourth terrace, sloth, what's the problem with that? Well, you can love things, but you can love them too little. You cannot put the effort forth. You cannot work hard enough to get them. And that's what sloth is. I think that's a very good definition of sloth. That you love something, but you just kind of like drag your feet and you don't really do your best. I'm sure you've all had some moment where like you had some time to do something, like a reading assignment, but like you sort of distracted yourself a bunch and even though you had an hour to do like 20 pages, you got through like four pages. Anybody ever set out to do something and then gotten distracted and not finished it all the time? Of course. Well, that's sloth according to Dante. In any case, the final three terraces, and I'll change it to there, are uh, some of the first three from the Inferno, the somewhat lesser sins. They are avarice and prodigality in this case. We'll learn about that from Statius. Gluttony and lust, and those are rational, those are object, um, hmm, those are vices of too much vigor being applied to an object. So, uh, if you're avaricious, you love money, but you love it too much. If you're gluttonous, you love food, which is fine, but you love it too much. And if you're lustful, you love people, but you love them a little too much, and that's what's not fine. And so the problem isn't that you love people, or that you love food, or that you want to make money, it's that you want it too much. You put too much into that. You lose, again, perspective and balance on things. You've got to love food, and people, and money, and balance all those things out. You can't be a Midas, or you would rather not be a Midas about this sort of thing. Alright, so just to reiterate, the first three cornices of purgatory suffer from rational love having the wrong object. Sloth has the issue of... Uh, uh, not having the wrong object, but rather being pursued with too little vigor, whereas the final three sins suffer from being inappropriately pursued by too much vigor. And so, what gets people to the purgatorio and what they need to expiate is the fact that they either love the wrong thing, love something too much, or love something too little. The whole problem is their love is dysfunctional. And so they need to get their love right, indicating that the whole uh, uh, goal of purgatory is to figure out what the best thing is to love and in the best way. Suggesting that what you should spend your life doing is figure out how to love the right things in the right ways. Does that sound wrong? Probably not. Probably not. Remember, reader, and this is our last direct address, and uh, this will be our last slide. Remember, reader, if you've ever been caught in the mountains by mist through which you only saw as moles see through their skin, you can't see it all. Again, how in the thick, damp, Vapors, once begin to thin, okay, so this acrid smoke is disappearing, we're about to enter a, uh, a new terrace here, this 
uh, of course, comes before the disquisition on rational love. The sun sphere passes feebly through them. Then your imagination will be quick to reach the point where it can see how I first came to see the sun again when it was almost at the point at which it sets. So the mist starts to disappear as the sun sets. So uh, that's interesting because those are contrasting images of losing the ability to see while regaining the ability to see. And then we see the slothful appear in a tumult, running like a furious crowd of bacantes. The bacantes uh, are known to rip off people's heads, by the way. They ripped off the head of Orpheus and also um, Agave, who was a bacante, ripped off in the work of the bacantes, or the bacchae by Euripides, ripped off her own son's head. And so the bacantes, if they're running at you, it's wild and crazy. And so, ah, which is kind of interesting because... Um, of course, the sloth will have too little vigor applied towards that which they love. Now you can see part of the expiation of their punishment. Part of the contrapasso is to now very, very vigorously pursue that which they love. So uh, in order to overcome their turpitude, their laziness, their, tepid, their, tepid, their tepidity or lukewarmness, they must now be overly warm. Hurry, hurry, and let no time be lost through lack of love, we hear on 18.